Amen. So um, back in chapter six, there was a pretty pivotal event. What was that? Isaiah's vision and commission. And so um, what was he commissioned to do? Prophesy, talk to the people. Um, <laughs> tell them to knock it off. So he was, he was told to go and speak, right? And, and remember that process that, um, first of all, uh, <clears throat> he had a fresh sense of who God was. Now, I don't think, as far as I can tell, that Isaiah was some, um, you know, rebellious, awful, heathen, human trafficker person before the vision, but he got this way expanded understanding of who God is. And, and that, uh, that got his attention. And then how, what did he say or feel or how did he respond when he saw God in his holiness? Humility. I am a man of unclean lips. He said, and it doesn't mean that he had, you know, spaghetti dripping down on his face. It's, um, I actually looked up that word unclean and it means defiled or polluted. And so, and so it, um, we might say, boy, that, that gal has a dirty mouth. And, and we don't mean that, that she has spaghetti. We mean that she uses um, foul language. She's, she's probably a, a former sailor. And, and, uh, and, and that, I mean, it's more than her lips, right? It's her thinking and it's her heart. So when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, um, it, his lips almost represent his whole being in a way. Although when, um, so when he says, oh, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, then what does God do? After his, he humbles himself, he recognizes who he is, in comparison to who God is, and then what does God do? Sends that angel, a seraphim, a seraph, I guess is the singular, seraphim is plural, um, and cleanses his lips. And so that prepares him then for the commission, which is go and tell the people. And so, so he's been, um, he's been telling the people all along. So what has he told the people? I mean, here we are, we're like 30 some chapters in, which, which means we're like almost halfway through the whole book. What has he been telling the people? Trust in God. Don't trust in the nations. What's that? Judgment's coming. Yes. Like you, you, you need to do this or else this is going to happen. So he's talking about um, that they need to trust him. Why should they trust him? I mean, if somebody says, oh, trust me, this is going to be a great investment. <laughs> Just write me a check for 20000 and we'll be, we'll be rich. You know. Okay, so either they're a scam artist or they have knowledge that I don't have. And in God's case, he's not a scam artist. He's, he just, he's God. Exactly, he's God. 
and he has a plan and a good plan if they'll just trust him. And we um, memorized chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will, I, oh, I've done a couple of different versions. I will trust and not be afraid. Is that, is that how we did? Because I had a couple of different versions. Yeah. <clears throat> so, okay, so that's the message that he's been giving them over and over. Now, how long did Isaiah serve as a prophet? 50, 60 years, decades. And it was a time of tumultuous change, not only in um, Israel the north and Judah the south, but in the major empires around them. So we could get pretty um, uh, uh, focused on the historical situations. And I'm kind of tempted to do that because I just want to understand everything that was happening. And that's fine if you, if you are a history buff or you know, you're just curious, uh, but don't, don't make this a history class because it's pretty easy to do that if you're interested in history. So what we're looking for um, is uh, step three of inductive study. We have observation, in, interpretation. Well, we're looking for, for step two first. Uh, observation, that's when we, you know, who was the king here and what did they do and who was his ally and what, you know, all those details, who, what, when, where, why, and how. And then we're looking for a principle, um, um, a moral of the story that's relevant to us because probably the king of Assyria is not going to be knocking at the door out there today. But, but we have other threats or challenges or problems and we are all tempted at, like in these three chapters the the issue is we're all tempted to trust in Egypt and and each one of us might have a different Egypt it might be a person so well I, I can always go to grandma you know or I can always count on my husband or I can always count on our daughter or, or you know a political person or whatever um, it could be a person it could be um, financial security. I mean, it could be most anything in our lives that we say, well, you know, as long as I have that, um, that's going to be, I'll be okay. I, I may lose other things, but, but I'll be okay. And so what we want to do as we look at these three chapters is to, you know, examine some of the details, but we mostly want to get the point. Trust me, God says, don't trust Egypt. And, and you can substitute other things for Egypt. But that was their temptation. That was their lure, their, um, their own doing. Like, ah, we'll make a deal with Egypt. That's what we'll do. We've got this problem. So keep that in mind. It's not a history class primarily. And so he's got, he basically has two messages. Um, as you said, one is about judgment, but the other one is about you guys, all you have to do is respond to my love, and I just want to bless your socks off. And, but, but if you don't, then there are consequences. And so we have these woes, right? And we, the word woe has already been used, um, I think, oh, I think in the book altogether, like 15 already. But yes, this is, is this the... This is the fourth in, this, in these chapters, 28.1, 16.1, 16.2, 16.3, 16.4, 16.5, 16.6, 16.7, 16.8, 16.9, 16.10, 16.11, 16.12, 16.13, 16.14, 16.15, 16.16
So chapter 28 started with the word woe. Chapter 29 started with the word woe. And then in the middle of 29, I think is it verse 15, there's, there's woe. <clears throat> and then we have uh, woe here in 30, at the beginning of chapter 30 and 31. 32 says behold, <laughs> it's a little different, but 33, we're going to be back to woe. So, so in this series of this little section of 28 to about 33, um, you've got six woes. So that kind of tells you the overall tone, and it's just a warning. It's a warning that judgment's coming if something doesn't happen, if there's not a change made, okay? Um, so 28 and 29, it was um, woe to who? I know this was like last week. The children of Israel. And he talked to the north and the south, right? <clears throat> Forgot my water. <coughs> um, so he talked to both of them. And as we get into chapter 30, um, what, okay, the first word, we already said the first word is woe. <clears throat> what is the point of chapter 30? Like, what's your theme or your topic? If you were giving it a title, what? What was the very first? Rebuke, punishment, and then the promise if they do respond, right? Okay, anybody else? I have one, but yes, I can, I can take another that alliance with Egypt, so, so he's saying uh, that's not a good idea. <laughs> Don't do that, right? <clears throat> so the first seven verses, uh, let's read the first verse. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin. So he's saying... Um, Again, woe, you know, unless there's a change, something bad's going to come. And, and so who, who are these rebellious children? I mean, is it Egypt? It's his own people, right? He's talking to his own people and he's saying they're rebellious. Oh, we could put, here's one of his characterizations of them. <clears throat> They are rebellious. I'm not going to write all the references, but when you, when you make lists like this, I think um, in our lesson, didn't we do that on page, um, on page um, 86, about a third of the way down, it says, what do you learn about the children of Israel from this chapter? <clears throat> it's really good to write what verse you got your answer from just so if you want to go back to it or if somebody else says, oh, that is genius, I didn't see that, then you can tell them, oh, it's right there in verse 7. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so this may help you. You've, you've made that list. Um, oh, thank you so much. Sorry. Don't, don't, yeah, don't spill it. <laughs> thank you. Um, I believe so. Surely. Israel, 
Yeah, Shirley's saying that, th that these children, when he says rebellious children, now it seems that he's focusing on Judah because um, they have a situation going on that, that um, Assyria, we've talked about Assyria, they're one of the, they're like the big uh, world empire. They're coming down toward them to attack and they've maybe already begun a little bit in the north. And so they, so Egypt is south, so they think, well, maybe Egypt will buddy up with us and we can, you know, together withstand this um, onslaught. I don't understand their, their reasoning. <laughs> for 400 years, they were slaves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what makes them think that they can trust us? Yeah. Well, there was a percentage that always wanted to go back. Yes. <laughs> So, so, so Joe's saying, why would they trust Egypt when they'd been slaves there, their forefathers had? And Terry said, what, yeah, why would they go back? But, um, you know, this is quite a bit later, and they're just, they just get, like, desperate and want to do something. It is our human condition, yes. We do not learn from history. <laughs> yep. That's one of the dangers of getting rid of, of history, even if it's um, kind of shameful. We, we want to be able to say, let's not go back there, right? Mm-hmm. Right what it was going to lead them into. They knew, they knew that Egypt was not a godly nation, certainly. And they brought the idols back, yes. Um, yes? Maybe. Well, let's add... Um, um, Lana's saying that maybe the northern kingdom hasn't fallen yet. Let's add this to the mix. Some scholars think that chapter 32, which we studied, and 33, which we'll look at next week, were actually, um, actually came before chapter 31 and 32, just to make things a little more interesting. <laughs> I know, you were, you were kind of bored, so I thought I'd throw that in. Um, Okay, so what does he say about them in the first, like, seven verses? What, is he, what are his charges against them? He says they're rebellious, but what else? Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to put go for plan, not God's. So they, they come up with their own idea. Now, of course, none of us have ever done that, but, you know, some people do. Uh, anything else in that section? Because we're going to start kind of moving along. <clears throat> he mentions specifically, mentions Egypt, um, that the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame. Um, if you try to hide in the shadow of Egypt, you'll be humiliated. So he's warning them specifically about this situation. And just um, a little heads up that when we get to chapter 36, so in a couple of lessons, it's going to be kind of a historical. It's going to tell us what was happening with Hezekiah and, 
and these threats and all that stuff. So that'll be kind of a, a fun little change of pace, 36 and 37. Um, okay, so the first seven verses, he, he just says, you know, don't trust Egypt. You know, he says it in two or three different ways. Egypt's going to let you down. It's not going to work. That's not my plan. You know, he tells them in a bunch of different ways. And then uh, verse 6, when he talks about the beasts and all that stuff, that's about them taking treasures. You know, they didn't just like um, do um, PayPal or something. You know, they took, they took physical treasures down on their... Um, donkeys and camels to Egypt, which if you look on a map, it was quite a ways, through the, through the Negev or Negev Desert, which is why they talk about these wild animals and stuff. And, and they, they take them there like to bribe, to, you know, to, to lure them or to induce them to make a partnership. And, and they took the goodies, but they didn't really help. They, but they took the goodies. Um, so that's what the, those verses are about. Now, when we get to verse 8, oh, he says in 7 that Egypt's help is vain and empty, and I have called her Rahab who has been exterminated or who does nothing or sits idle. Um, through the scripture, there are several times when the word Rahab, the name Rahab, is used kind of as a symbolic name for Egypt. So you might be thinking about Rahab, uh, the prostitute, when the spies went in, but it's, but I, I can't remember what the origin of the word was, but it, it means, the name means pride, and it's used as a title for Egypt, and there's a couple of other places, pride and arrogance. Mm -hmm. Could be. Egypt had lots of gods. Lots of gods. Okay. So in verse 8, then um, I'm, I'm thinking that this is God talking to Isaiah. Saying, okay, Isaiah, here's what we need to do. Um, so what does he tell Isaiah to do? Write it on a tablet. And why, is, why doesn't he just tell them? Because most of these messages he's just speaking. So why does is, why is this one need to be written on a tablet and, and more permanent? As a witness forever in the time to come. So, so he says, I want them to remember that I told them this wasn't a good idea. I, God... I mean, God doesn't beg people, but he, almost, he, he implored them, <laughs> entreated them, do not trust in Egypt. It's not going to go well. I want to be your God. I want to be your rescue. I want to be your provider. I want to be your protector. And notice it says forever. So we're still reading this. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a while. And there's in one of our... Oh, is that chapter 32? It says God does not retract his word. Was that in chapter 32? Hmm. Anyway, one of these chapters, it says 31. 31-2 31 
says, God is wise and he will bring disaster and he does not retract his word. So in other words, if God said it, you know, you've seen that bumper sticker. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. Well, really, if God said it, that settles it. Because there's a lot of people that don't believe a lot of things that God has said. And it's still settled. I mean, what God said is still going to happen. Now, it's good. It, maybe it means it's settled for me, the fact that I have, you know, decided to trust God and accept his word as truth. Okay, so he's, gonna, he's supposed to write um, on this thing. Um, and so what does he have to say now about the people? He talks some more about them, starting in verse 9. They're still rebellious. Okay, we're going to put another thing. Refuse to listen to him. Okay, refuse to listen to God. Anything else in that section down to about, what is it, verse 17 or something? What's that? Oh, they're false sons. And that word false means lying. It doesn't mean that they're not really his sons. It, it means that, I looked it up, it means lying. They're false. They're not what they say they are. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. Does anybody have New King James? Do you have a New King James Bible? Can you read the second? Um, there's two lines in verse 11. Can you read how New King James puts that? Chapter. Yes. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease before us. Yeah. What verse? Cause the Holy One of Israel to be gone before us? Cease, Cease before us. Uh, this version says, let us hear no more about him. But they want to just pretend like, go away. <laughs> we don't want him here. And so it sounds a lot like that passage in 2 Timothy uh, 4, verses 3 and 4, where it talks about in the last days, people will only want their ears tickled. They won't want... Um, you know, don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about the, the, how horrific the cross was. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about, um, you know, anything that we don't want to hear about. Just tell us good stuff. Tell us pleasant things. Tell us how to get a, a promotion at work. Tell us how to have happy relationships. Tell us how to prosper financially. Tell, you know, just tell us the stuff that we like. That's easy. And, and so, you know, we don't like to be confronted, but if we read the whole counsel of God's word, it's, it's like going to a doctor or an attorney and, and then not taking their advice. They know more than I do probably about whatever I'm consulting them for and, and then not taking their advice. So 
So these, he says they're rebellious, they don't listen, and not only that, they don't even want to, it's like, go away, go away. Ooh. <laughs> trust. What was the first word? In oppression. Oppression. Trust, oppression, and guile. Yeah. Anything else? Um, let's see. That section, I'm going to say it goes down to about 17. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Um, anything else? He talks about that there's going to be judgment. Um, let's see. Um, what have we learned about God so far? In Like just in this chapter. He doesn't go back on his word. Okay. Keeps his word. Somebody said patient he is patient one um it, is it in this chapter or the next chapter where it says he he waits to to be compassionate or he waits to bless you or he waits to be gracious to you anything else what titles are used that's verse 18, that's verse 18. okay what titles are used for god okay So, Holy One of Israel is used several times. Oh, teacher. Isn't that interesting? Yes, your teacher. And Lord God. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, there will be consequences if you reject God and his word. And that whole thing about um, the word shirred, S-H-E-R-D, I never heard of that word. I thought it was a typo. But, but um, I looked it up, and it's, it's an, a synonym for shard. It's more of a technical term that archaeologists would tend to use. And it comes from potsherd. Pots you know, it's a shortened form. But what it's saying is you'll be so shattered that there won't even be a little piece to use to kind of push the coals together or dip up a little water. It's just going to, it's just talking about a really um, complete destruction. Okay, what about um, verse 15? That, that kind of changes a little, a little bit of, um, a little bit of, of the tune. And we look here, we've got We've got these rebellious people that, that, I mean, they're supposed to be God's people. He's not even talking to, you know, Babylon or Assyria or, or Egypt. He's talking to the people that claim to be his people, that are supposed to be his people. And so they're rebellious. They, they do their own thing instead of seeking God's plans. They don't listen to him. All these things, they trust other things. But over here we have this God um, who's holy and patient and keeps his word and wants to teach us. And so these red marks represent that there's like a gulf in between, right? And so if I find myself over here, even in just one little area of my life, and I look at who God is, I see the Lord high and lifted up, 
how am I ever supposed to span this gulf? Repent, because God's already spanned, right? He's already spanned it, but, but he says repent. What else? Repentance and rest, yes. Quietness, trust equals strength. Okay, now, quiet. What's that? Yes, it is, exactly. Lana says, that's kind of counterintuitive. And that's his point, I think, is that they're rushing off and doing something rash and getting sucked into this plan. <clears throat> they're trusting oppression and guile. And he says, slow down. Take some time to listen to me and to figure out what I want you to do. Repent doesn't mean to be sorry for what you've done. It means to change your thinking. This pent, that like in our, our English word is like where we get the word pensive. You like to think, you know. It's to think again, repent. Think again, change my mind. I've been thinking about this situation this way, but God wants me to think about it this way. So it involves some, some action, some follow through because I view the situation from God's viewpoint now. I wanted to read you a little quote from Spurgeon where he talked about this rest and um, if I can find it here on my assistant. <clears throat> now remember Spurgeon, who knows, like did he live in the late 1800s and into the early 900, 1900s? So a hundred years ago maybe, huh? You think it was before that? He says, <clears throat> certain of God's people are in trouble and distress and they're eager for immediate rescue. They cannot wait God's time nor exercise submission to his will. He will surely deliver them in due season, but they can't tarry till the hour comes. <clears throat> like little children, they snatch at unripe fruit. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, but their one season is the present. They cannot, no, they will not wait. They must have their desire fulfilled instantly or else they are ready to take wrong means of attaining it themselves. If they're in poverty, they're in haste to be rich and they shall not long re remain innocent. If under reproach from others, their heart ferments toward revenge. They would sooner rush under the guidance of Satan into some questionable policy than in childlike simplicity, than in childlike simplicity to trust in the Lord and do good. It must not be so with you, my brethren. You must learn a better way. I thought that was pretty good because he talked about how impatient people were. That was a hundred years ago. Now think how much more impatient we are. <laughs> yes. Yes. We got to have it right now. I mean, if it takes a few seconds for something to load on our tablet, we're like, come on, come on. You know, 
microwave. Yeah, the microwave, like what? <laughs> so, <clears throat> so in this section, he's, he's talking about how um, they're rebellious in that they, aren't, they, they won't do God's, what God wants them to do. But he still is merciful. He's still good. He still, um, you know, um, woos them and says, you know, here's, here's how things are going to work out for you. Settle down. Take some time to think about what I've said, what I've promised, what I've done for you personally in the past, what I've done for your forefathers, and repent. Change your thinking. Make a shift. Um, let's see. What's the rest of that section? Oh, and then he says, <clears throat> no, but you said, nope, we're going to flee on horses. And he's like, yeah, you'll flee all right. And then they say, oh, we'll ride on swift horses. And he's like, yeah, well, those who pursue you will be swift too. So he's, he's just kind of almost making fun of how silly their little statements are. And, and, then he's, and then in there when he talks about in verse 17 about a thousand will flee at the threat of one and you will flee at the threat of five. That is a fulfillment of um, a blessing cursing that he, that he pronounced to his people back in Leviticus 26. So in Leviticus 26, 8, that's the blessings section. And he's saying, oh, if you follow me, I mean, you know, you'll be able to in war, uh, one person will be able to handle a thousand or I don't remember the exact numbers. And then in the, in the, cursings for disobedience and rebellion that's Leviticus 26 17 and then also similarly in um, Deuteronomy 32 verses 28 29 and 30 so so when he says this that's going to ring a bell with them they're like uh-oh we're not in the blessing section anymore we're in the <laughs> yeah curses Okay, um, all right, so um, verse 18, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's kind of surprising when you read along and then it says, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, longs to be gracious to you, and he waits on high uh, to have compassion on you, for he's a God of justice. Okay, so he's, he's uh, just... And he's compassionate, gracious, he wants to be gracious to us more than we want to receive it from him, right? And, and a lot of times you don't think of compassionate and compassion and grace in the same thought as being just in judgment and that kind of thing, but that's who God is. Because he's love, because he's compassionate, because he's merciful, because he's gracious, um, what he does in judgment is just. It's not mean. It's not um, um, like, you know, he's ticked off, so so he's like going to slap somebody around. It's it, It's just. It's appropriate it's if he's a righteous god he has to deal with with sin right but he's made a way to do that so therefore the lord longs to be gracious to you and then um 
then on in the rest of that section, he talks about how, um, you know, what's going to happen, the blessings and all that. And, and he, when he says the Lord longs to be gracious to you and he waits on high to have compassion on you. So who's you? According to the last um, of the verse, the last part of the verse. The last part of verse 18. Yes, they are rebellious now. You're right. Yeah, that's what he's saying is he longs for us. And if in response we long for him, oh, he's just ready to just, you know, bless and, and all that stuff. So, so um, he talks about Zion and Jerusalem and that all. Then the rest, the next few verses are these different blessings that he promises them if they repent, if they, if they um, uh, long for him, if they turn around and stop depending on Egypt and other things and seek him, these, then it lists a bunch of the blessings that he's going to give them, right? One of the things that he mentions in verse 22 is that, that, as part of longing for God, they'll get rid of idols. And he will, and you will, you'll throw them away. You'll say, get away, be gone, you know, scat or something. Get away from me, yuck. And it says that you will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. Uh, impure thing uh, literally means unclean. And it's the word that's used for used menstrual rags. It's like yuck, <laughs> and and it it's um, you can you can find it a couple of places in Leviticus where there are instructions about that. But he's like, you know, one of the yuckiest things you can think of. You're just gonna get those idols away from me. I I see God for who He is now. Um, talks about He'll give rain and bless their crops and everything. And a lot of these idols, they would you know they were fertility idols they they were the the rain god they were you know we we need uh we need water we need sun we need you know a good crop and all that stuff but he says no no i'm the one that does that those things that you have made with your hands out of silver and out of gold they can't do that what about global warming <laughs> Right, right. Yes, global warming says our man's actions control the weather, the well, the climate even um, of the world, and and I'm pretty sure God controls that. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure. Um, down at the bottom, when he's talking, when he's talking about um, in verse 25, the uh, there will be every lofty mountain and high hill, there will be streams running with water. Um, usually streams are like down in valleys and stuff, but he's, gonna, he's just saying there'll be water everywhere. And the day of the great slaughter and the towers fall, that could be a, a double reference to the end times when, because there's a great slaughter um, of those that oppose God, Revelation 19. And then when it talks about the moon being extra bright and the sun being extra bright, 
it could be revelation as well. Although a lot of things in Revelation talk about those things, um, the sun and the moon and the stars going dim. This could possibly be during the millennium where things are just going to grow abundantly. I don't know. Don't, don't take a bullet for that. But <laughs> The rest of verse um, 26 talks about him healing his people. So there's all these blessings. If they will, if they will turn, if they will, if they will rest, if they will, if they will listen to God and all that. So what about the last section of that chapter from 27 down to 33? There's a shift and now there's a little focus on what? Who? The now he's talking about the nation. So he he's told his people, reminded them who he is and what he can do for them and what he longs to do for them and and what their current situation is and he, and he's saying besides you're trusting in Egypt which is just it's just people and so he's talking about how um, that there'll be a time of judgment it says in verse 28 the nations and the peoples and and then but you in verse 29 you're going to you're going to be you're not going to be part of that judgment so that kind of has end times um, references too although it could refer to some of these cool things that god does on behalf of his people like in chapter 36 and 37 when the assyrian army is surrounding jerusalem and they wake up in the morning and there's 185,000 soldiers dead because the angel of the Lord came. Somewhere it says with, without the arm of man or something like that. Let's see. But somewhere it says that it won't, it won't be from man. Maybe that's in the next chapter. Anyway, so he, now he's shifting and he's saying, just to remind you. Well, remember, he's already done this. From chapter 13 to 23, he's gone through and talked about, here's where that nation's going to go. Here's where, what's going to happen to Babylon. Here's what's going to happen to Tyre. Here's what's going to happen to Moab, all that. But he's just reviewing for them and for us, um, these great nations that we think we can trust, these things, they're not, they're not eternal. They're not going to be forever. Not that there aren't individuals, in, within those cultures that would follow the Lord. Uh, down in 33, Topheth. Did you look up Topheth? you have any idea? Of their children. It's, it's like a New Testament Gehenna. If you come across that in the New Testament, it was a physical place near Jerusalem, but... But because it was so awful and they burned garbage and they did uh, human sacrifice and all that stuff, it became a euphemism, euphemism for hell. So he's saying, uh, hell's been waiting for him. <laughs> 33, the very, I think that's the last verse, right? Okay. Um, did you mark anything in this chapter as a lesson for life? Lesson for life is just something you're like, that's something I need to remember. I would be smart to review this from time to time. Lesson. Okay, yes. Verse 15. 
In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Verse 18. Yes. How blessed are all those who long for him. So, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily ask you in the lesson to, to mark lessons for life, but if you come across something that you're thinking, that is good stuff. Uh, it doesn't hurt to, I just put a, a green star and write LFL in the margin. Okay, <clears throat> let's look at chapter um, 31. And what is it about? Woe. So it's, it's kind of similar to, it's sort of a shortened, shortened version of chapter 30, right? Um, verse 8, um, it says, and the Assyrians, so now he's talking specifically, um, I think this may refer to the Assyrians threatening Jerusalem. He says, um, the Assyrian will fall by a sword, not of man. So I think he's, I think that he's referring to that when the angel of the Lord is going to kill all those, all those soldiers. And Barry found a place somewhere where, where um, in the Assyrian military records it said, oh, our people just all got sick and well, died. I'm reading Wikipedia or whatever. Oh. It says that it had to leave quickly because a plague broke. Yeah, a plague broke out. Well, they just got sick. <laughs> But the Bible says an angel of the Lord. So you'll have fun reading that. That's chapter 36 and 37. Um, and so it just that he's going to intervene on their behalf. So I think if it's okay, we'll just go ahead to chapter 32. Um, God what? Defends his people. Yeah, I put victory comes from God, not from Egypt. Okay, I hear people gasping about 32. Did you not look at 32? Oh, okay. All right, it starts out, Behold, a king will reign righteously. Um, that phrase stopped me, or that clause stopped me, because I thought, is that talking about Jesus? Is that talking about Hezekiah? Because he's better than some kings. Is it talking about uh, King Josiah, who's going to be like, three or four kings down, but I did some study in the language, and what I understand it to mean, because I looked in the, in the Greek, you know, how it's, and, and I, I don't mean that I'm proficient in Greek, I just know how to use tools, and it, it seems to mean, on the other hand, if a king were to reign righteously, because all, remember how he, how he, had such condemnation for the leaders, how they were doing their own thing and they were drunk and, and, and they were um, mistreating the little people and they weren't listening to God. And so, so um, it could be that he's saying, now, now on the other hand, should there be a king that ruled righteously and the princes ruled justly, so in other words, his government, his cabinet, his, you know, whatever, um, and then it talks about what that would be like. And also another reason that I think, um, I think it means that, like if there were to be a righteous king, because the word um, 
rain, will rain, it means um, to begin to rain. Every time when it says, and so-and-so his son became king after him, it's that same um, Hebrew word. Um, and it's used, you know, dozens and do hundred, like 348 times in the Old Testament. And especially in First and Second Kings, when every other chapter or so, it's like so-and-so and his son reigned in his place. Or so-and-so killed so-and-so and reigned in his place. So... It means like the beginning of a reign. So if there were to be a king who would reign righteously, and I do think there's a little hint that Jesus, the righteous king, is coming down the line because he's already talked about that, right? He's in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, he's talked about, you know, that he'll be the prince of peace and, and you know, all that and that he will reign, he will be a righteous branch and all that. So I don't think it's a brand new idea that it may refer to the, to the uh, coming of Messiah. But I think also he's just saying, look, it could be a lot different. If you had godly leaders, this is how things could be. So um, in the first four verses, he's saying, you know, if, if a righteous king should rule and then, and then he talks about, um, how some things would change down in five through eight. So what I like all these characters he talks about, fools, rogues, noble. So what's his point in there talking about all these different types of people? Don't be like them. Don't be like some of them for sure, right? What did you say, Bertie? Yeah, oh yeah, the rogues and the fools are. But he's talking about, too, that, that we're not, it's going to be obvious. Like, people aren't going to call the fool noble. Oh, what a wonderful man, you know. What a wonderful woman. Um, they'll be seen as they really they'll are. They'll be seen as they really are, yes. It reminds me of the, uh, the emperor's yeah. new clothes. And his new clothes, yeah. yes. Because, you know, culture is telling mm -hmm. Right. And we all know it's not right. Right. Well, they said, don't, don't preach to us anymore about what's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he's saying no longer will the fool be called noble. Like, they're, they're, you know, remember before it said, uh, woe to those who call right wrong and wrong right. Well, this is kind of an example of revealing the character of people. What's that? Exposed, yes. Oh, I see what you, what, it, the beginning of verse 8 when it says but. So he's been saying no longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. In other words, um, things are topsy-turvy right now. But when he gets to verse 8, he says, but instead, if somebody's noble, they're going to make noble plans and and he'll be known for his noble plans. I think he's just saying that's kind of a, the other way of saying people will, will be revealed for what they really are. Because up above in verses 5 through 7, he's saying 
this one will no longer be called this or known this, but he says, but in those days, if there is a noble man, he's going to make noble plans and he's going to be known or stand by noble plans. Yes, Lana. Yes. In their day. Mm-hmm. Um, their kings were, in the south, their kings were all from the line of David, so they were almost always the son. Once I think there was one case where it was the nephew. So it was the son of the previous king because they were all of the Davidic line. And when it says noble, I don't know that that's a title. I think it's more of a description. Noble means somebody who, I looked it up, it means somebody of fine character. Uh, Generous. Yeah, go ahead. I think it can be. Uh, yes, I mentioned that as a possibility. I think it, it might be a little hint like, you know, one of these days you're going to get a really righteous king. And, and Hezekiah does pretty well, you know, spoiler alert. Um, by and large, he's certainly better than Ahaz. <laughs> and... And then, and then a, a few more generations after him is King Josiah, and he does lots of reforms, and you know he really seeks the Lord. And then ultimately, the righteous king will be Jesus. I do think so. I think that's kind of what it's saying. Um, let's see. Oh, it, what's the shift in verse nine? And what kind of women? complacent and I I looked those words up because I thought well what does at ease mean it sounds like it's a bad thing so yes a false sense of security is a good way to put it luxuries and Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Lana's saying uh, it might refer to people who are married to somebody because it's addressing the women specifically in that culture. It was usually the man that provided. And so she's saying maybe it's addressing the women who would have a sense of um, no worries. Oh, you know, Bert, Bert will take good care of me or established. So I looked up the words. Uh, the word at ease, the, the Hebrew word basically means uh, secure or without a care. So it's, kind of, it's, it's just what we're, what we're saying. Yeah, false security because most anything can be gone pretty fast, right? Um, ask the people in Turkey. Um, um, noble, let's see. Oh, complacent because he uses these terms. Uh, he uses complacent three times and at ease at least twice or three times three times complacent means um, that all it's very similar it means uh, secure uh, trusting in your situation confident um, also without a care so these it's not that they're um, lazy right it's that it's that all oh, you know things are fine we're, we're good we're good, yeah. And and what does he say in verse ten? 
There's a time clue. Okay, so that might wake you up, right? In a year and a few days, so not long. So, so this is, um, let's see, there's another time clue um, in, well, let's talk about this first. Um, within a year and a few days, you will be troubled. So now they're like, ah, everything's fine, but, but you're going to be troubled. And troubled means agitated, perturbed, shaking, disturbed, fretful, trembling, that kind of thing. It's like, you're just like, hey, it's cool. We got our lemonade. Um, but but it, things are going to change, is what he's saying, and, and quite soon. For the vintage is ending, you know, the crops are going to dry up. Um, what else? Um, oh, he says that they should take off their clothing and put on sackcloth, and that shows... Um, a humility, a repentance, um, a mourning, a preparation for um, something that God wants to do. Uh, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up for all, yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, Hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys and a pasture for flocks. So he's talking about, I think, <coughs> that there's going to come a time that even uh, Judah is going to go into captivity and the land's going to be left, you know, relatively uninhabited. And then, I love verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And then it talks about then the wilderness is going to become fertile and it's going to be like a forest and there will be justice and righteousness and, and peace and um, uh, un they'll be undisturbed, which is kind of down in verse 18, which is, which is kind of like the at ease or complacent, but but because things truly are good because the Spirit has been poured out. So when will the Spirit be poured out upon them? When was the Spirit poured out? Is it the end times? Has the Spirit been poured out now? Has, has it, well, let's start there. Has it happened yet? Yes. Pentecost. Um, and there's a couple of, I want to give you several other references in the Old Testament that, that talk about this. Uh, the, most, um, the most literal uh, similar one is Joel 2, 28. <clears throat> and then there are several passages in Ezekiel that talk about the pouring out of the Spirit. Um, Ezekiel 36, 27. 37, 14. And 39.29, those three are all in Ezekiel. 36.27, 37.14, and 39.29. And then also, um, I think Zechariah 12.10, I have scribbled there. And back in chapter... And all those references. They have to do with pouring out the Spirit. That, yeah, that it would be, in the Old Testament, 
how did the Spirit operate or minister? Came up on somebody. Um, if you know when when a when a king was anointed, or when they uh, somebody um, was going to prophesy, or in battle or something, it'll say the spirit of the Lord came upon this person, and they were enabled to do um, you know unusual things. They were powerful. They had wisdom. They had you know different different um, enhanced abilities beyond just their human abilities. And so in the Old Testament, these passages like this one and Joel, it says that there'll come a time when God will pour out his spirit in a, in a full way on all believers. And, and in Acts 2, when that happens, they quote Joel and they say, uh, well, I'm not sure if they quote it in Acts 2, but I think it's still chapter 2. They say, this is what the prophet was talking about. This pouring out of the Spirit on all believers. Because he said, um, see, in the Old Testament, it was people chosen for like a special role or position or, or work. But, but he says, the time will come when I will pour out my Spirit on all believers. You know, men, women, uh, nobles, servants you know, old men, young men, um, you know, everybody. And, and so that, that happened at Pentecost. So it's already happened now for us, but it had not happened for them. And so he was saying that there would be, he's talking about that there'll be kind of this bleak time for his people until the Spirit is poured out. So um, it, there's still a, a regathering and a, and uh, uh, God's work in the, with the Jews still to come. Not that he hasn't been faithful to them all along, but they're not very responsive by and large. Um, so the Spirit will be poured out upon us from on high, and then it talks about all the results of that. Um, let's see if I had... Yes. I think so. Yes. I think it's probably Jerusalem. There were a few, but I mean, it wasn't like every single person in the whole land was taken away. But yes, by and large. Nehemiah. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. When Nehemiah Not everybody wanted to go back. You think about it, you you know, you've kind of gotten settled in in um, in um, Babylon. Babylon and and so not everybody wanted you know, if you're older and Things are not too bad, <laughs> you know. You might not want to make the trip or whatever. So, yeah. 
I think so. Okay, but then the sixth pain I have is down. Mm-hmm. That has the reference to Pentecost. Mm-hmm. There's a huge time yes. gap between verses 14 and 15. Yes. And so for me, in my brain, that's a little bit problematic because, like, okay, so how, okay, when God does prophecy here, and these all come true, you're talking about huge gaps of time from verse 14 to 15. Yeah. It almost looks like it could be like one sentence. Yes. In fact, it is one sentence. It's not like we think. Yeah. Right. So how, when he does okay. Yeah. So Lana's asking basically, um, it seems like there's a very large time gap between verse 15 and then, I mean, yeah, 14 and then verse 15. And kind of how would we know that and why is it like that? Um, I, I think we've seen that before in Isaiah, it seems like he does jump around a lot, but uh, there's a connection and there also is often a dual fulfillment, like something's going to happen pretty soon that's going to fulfill it. And then, but then there's an ultimate bigger, um, you know, more impressive fulfilling of it in, in times. Um, I think Isaiah 7, 14 and 15. Mm -hmm, About the virgins shall conceive. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the fact that I, I wrote in my margin, wow, verse 11 through 15 seems like it's one sentence. So, so that makes it, to me, that helps. <laughs> Maybe you think it makes it worse. Um, he's saying, you know, this is going to happen within a year, in a little bit, this is going to happen. And those consequences are going to linger for a long time. It's not going to be just one season. That things are going to be pretty bleak for, for Judah for quite a long time until, but not, not forever, there is an ending time until the Spirit is poured out. So yes, Linda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to rest in God. During those times, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. 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 And we all have times like that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Look. The spirit, um, the spirit-filled, spirit-indwelled life is coming. Yes. Okay. How are we doing? What? Did you wave your arms at me and I didn't see them? Oh my gosh! I thought, wow, we're doing pretty well. We're whipping around. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. It's video time and then some. Sorry. Quarter after. Oh my Mine says 13. <laughs> but still.
Yeah. Scriptures that looked at Israel and Egypt together because I think there's a pattern that's, that's very 